You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. My name is Rabbi Arya Wolby. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to continue the Talmud that we were discussing about the challenges the Jewish people faced when they were in Egypt, the decrees of Pharaoh, the evil decrees of Pharaoh. And the Talmud we have discussed, we, we have been discussing till now was many of the decrees that Pharaoh decreed upon the Jewish people in Egypt. Now, there's a point that I want to bring out that I think is very, very important for us to understand. The Ramchal writes that what is the trick of the Yetzirah? The trick of the Yetzirah, because if you think about it, every person wants to do good. So what gets in our way? What gets in our way? Ramchal says the Yetzirah has a great talent and that he keeps us busy. Every second there's another ping from our phone. Every minute there's another message from our computer. Every second there's another news alert. There's something always going on keeping us busy. The Ramchal says we learn this from Pharaoh. Pharaoh <coughs> realized that the Jewish people are going to rebel if they have time to think. So what does he need to do? Keep them busy. Now imagine if you had free labor from 3 million Jews for 210 years. I mean, you'd be able to build every skyscraper. You'd be able to clean. I mean, you would have the biggest city built in 10 years, 15 years. Free labor. And if you don't produce fast enough, they'll whip you. So what's he going to do? He's going to have them for 210 years of slavery. What's he going to do with them? He has to keep them busy. Because otherwise, they're going to rebel against him. So he made them build cities in quicksand. He made he made them kill their babies so they don't have more more workers. Or you know there was there was a challenge that he was facing. What do I do with all of this resources? All of these resources. The Ramchal says this is an example of the Yetzahara. The Yetzahara wants us busy all the time, and if we can just take note of that in our lives and realize that is the doing of the Yetzahara. Us being so busy, it's good to be busy. The halacha says that someone who's has too much free time ends up doing sins. Someone who's bored will end up doing sins. But if someone is cautious to always be working on what God wants them to be doing, on not being busy, working and doing proactive things to accomplish, that is the key to success in life. So let's see what Pharaoh did to the Jewish people. Now, we had a lengthy discussion about the Davidic dynasty and related matters. The Gemara returns now to the topic of Pharaoh's decrees against the Jewish people. As noted above, these decrees were successively more severe. The last decree discussed above was Pharaoh's command to the midwives to kill the male children at childbirth. The Gemara teaches, Ba'itzav Pharaoh l'cholamo, and Pharaoh commanded his entire people. Now, if you remember, last week when we discussed this, we talked about how Pharaoh didn't only decree on the Jewish babies, he also decreed on the Egyptian babies. Why? Because he realized that 
no one's going to listen if it's just the Jewish babies. Somehow they're being saved. But if he decrees on all babies, also the Egyptian babies, then what happens? And every, anytime you see a little baby, you'll know, oh, that, that baby wasn't killed. He's not an Egyptian baby. It's time to kill him. That was what Pharaoh wanted. Kill all the babies. Even the Egyptians. That way, we at least get rid of the Jewish babies. Okay, when, when you have evil, you're even ready to hurt yourself a little bit so that you can hurt them a lot. He wants to wipe out his own population. No, but he wants to wipe out the Jewish babies. And he so knows that the but he knows that the redeemer of the Jewish people is about to be born. He saw that already okay. from the constellations, all of the you know, fortune tellers have all told him that. They've seen it. They said this is about to happen. So he wants to avert that. The Torah tells us, and Pharaoh commanded his entire people, saying, Every son that will be born into the river shall you throw him. The son of Rabbi Hanina said, The phrase his entire people indicates, that he applied this decree to his own people as well. And if you look at the commentaries here, Rashi cites the Medrash Tanchuma, which provides the background for the decree. On the day that Moses was born, Pharaoh's astrologers told him, Today, the Jewish people's Savior has been born. But we do not know if he is an Egyptian or a Jew. In response, Pharaoh gathered his people and requested of them that they give him the babies born that day. He decreed that the Egyptian sons, too, should be thrown into the river. Maral explains that the astrologers could not tell if Moses was a Jew or an Egyptian for good reason. He was destined to be raised in Pharaoh, by Pharaoh's daughter, and whoever raises an orphan within his house is considered as if he has adopted them, like he has born them, he has sired them. So therefore, it wasn't known to the astrologers, they're looking, they're trying to figure it out, but they can't figure out, is this kid an Egyptian or a Jew? Why? Because he's going to be raised by the daughter of Pharaoh, and that would render him sort of like a child of the princess. Okay? So that's the answer to the question. The Gemara summarizes the decree. The decrees. Amar Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chenino. Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Chenino, Said further, Shalosh Xeros Gazar. Pharaoh issued three decrees. But in the beginning, he decreed Imbain who Vahamisen Oso. If it is a son, you are to kill him. And later he decreed, Every son that is born into the river shall you throw him. And ultimately, Af Al Amo. First you shall kill them, then you shall throw them into the river, and then Afal Amo Gazar, he applied the decree to his own people as well. Why? Because of that vision the astrologers had. So now the Gemara expounds on the next verse. Ishmi A man, referring to Amram, who is Moshe's father, went from the house of Levi and he took a daughter of Levi, Yocheved, as a wife. Well, it's not referring, that was his wife, that was Moshe's mother. Why does the verse describe Amram as going? Where did he go to? 
Amr Rabbi Yehuda bar Zvina, Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Zvina, said, Shaholach be'atzas bito. He went according to the counsel of his daughter. He followed her advice. The Gemara elaborates. Tana, the Brisa was taught. Amram gadol hador haya. Amram was the leader of the generation. Kevan amar paro Once he saw that the wicked Pharaoh said and decreed, call habein hayilod hayorat that every son that will be born into the river you shall throw him. Omar, Amram said, Amram said, we are laboring for nothing, for naught, right? In attempting to produce children. Consequently, he proceeded to divorce his wife. All the Jewish men followed suit and proceeded to divorce their wives. Amra Lobito, Amram's daughter, Miriam, said to him, Abba, father, your decree is harsher than that of Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh decreed only against the newborn male babies. But you have decreed against the males and the females. Why? Because now that the husbands and wives are not married any longer, there aren't going to be not male babies and not female babies. Pharaoh decreed only against life in this world. But you have decreed against life in this world and life in the world to come. So regarding the wicked Pharaoh, there is a possibility that his decree will be observed, and there's a possibility that it won't. Suffolk ain't Ms. Kayemis. And a possibility that it will not be observed. However, But you are a righteous man. Certainly your decree will be observed. As it says in regard to someone who is righteous, you would utter a decree and it would be done. Amram accepted his daughter's argument and proceeded to remarry his wife. And the Jewish men, all the Jewish men followed suit and proceeded to remarry their wives. So is a very important, two very important things to know here. Number one is that the power of a tzaddik, when a tzaddik makes a decree, it's very, very powerful. It says, Tzaddik gozer v'akadosh baruch hu The tzaddik declares a decree and the Almighty already fulfills the decree. All you need to do is make the decree if you're a tzaddik. That's why people go to righteous people to get a blessing. Well, what, what, what is he going to do? It's just words. No, it's not just words. When a tzaddik makes a decree, it has the influence in heavens for it to come to, real, to, to, to fruition. When a tzaddik makes a decree, it has the power to bring it to fruition. And that's why we seek the righteous, we seek the counsel, we seek the blessing of a righteous person. Someone told me that he went to a very, very holy rabbi when he was on his trip to Israel not long ago. And he's been struggling for a while, this individual. So he went to the rabbi, and the rabbi says, he hears a story, and he says, I can't give you a blessing today. 
on the last day of Hanukkah, I have your name here. I'm going to pray for you. Okay. He leaves his number with the Shamish, with the assistant to the Rebbe, to this holy master. And he says, please let me know when the Rebbe prayed for me. Okay. That was a month or so before Hanukkah. Comes two weeks later and he's struggling. He's really facing a lot of financial challenges, you know, big issues. He calls the Rebbe and he says, is it possible for me to get a blessing? And the assistant says, I'm sorry, the Rebbe said the last day of Hanukkah, it's only the last day. He says, please, I'm begging. The Rebbe says, I can't. Last day of Hanukkah. Last day of Hanukkah comes and he gets a phone call from the assistant of the Rebbe and the Rebbe tells him and the Rebbe conveys the message that I prayed for you and things are good things are coming your way. Three hours later, he told me, I heard this from the, from the individual himself. He says, three hours later, he gets a phone call out of the blue from someone he met at some con- conference <coughs> to present a deal to him. And he says the blessing that came to him and he was able to put together the fund for this deal in no time, like miraculous time. And the guy was so impressed, he brings him to his partner and says, this is the guy that raised all the capital for our deal. He's very impressed. He says, you know what? I want to bring him on two other deals. He said in hours, contract was signed. And it's just like suddenly what we say is Yeshua Hashem Keherafayin, the redemption from Hashem like we had in the Exodus from Egypt comes at the bat of an eyelash. How fast does your your eye blink? That's how fast the redemption comes. When God makes a decree, now, it doesn't mean that the rabbis have the power to influence the heavens and make changes when heaven says no. But it definitely puts in a very good word. I'll give you another example to that. Imagine that you're trying to persuade someone to do something for you. And everything you try doesn't persuade them. But then you have someone who they respect and they admire. Call them up. They say, I'm vouching for this and I really want you to do this. It, It has a power and an influence. When we come ourselves to the Almighty... That doesn't always change things in heaven. God says, well, I have a judgment against you for whatever reason that you're not going to get this success. You're not going to get this blessing. But then you call on the head honchos. You call on the big, not the head honchos, but the big names, the ones that God has a reverence for because of their commitment, because of their, their scholarship, because of their dedication to God. God says, oh, that's something I can't say no to. I can't say no to that. It, it, it gives that influence. So the first thing we need to learn from this Gemara is that when a righteous person makes a decree, the heavens get into turmoil. They're like, whoa, he made such a decree. We need to fulfill that decree of the righteous. Now, it's very interesting that the Mishnah, the introduction to the Mishnah of ethics of our fathers, what does it say? What do we say? A verse from the Mishnah. It says, V'amech Kulam tzadikim, your nation is all righteous. Which means that each and every one of us 
if we are able to connect with our inner righteousness, we are able to influence the heavens as well. We're able to bestow upon someone else a blessing. What's the power of a blessing? The power of a blessing is where you're saying, God, I'm giving this very strong recommendation. It's important. Please. That has great power. And Hashem should bless us all that we should be able to connect with that righteousness that's within us. But every one of us has it. There's no such thing as an evil person. It's There's people who made evil choices. I always tell regarding parenting. A parent should never ever tell a child you're a bad child. A child is not a bad child. They made poor choices perhaps. They made bad decisions. But they're not a bad child. I've heard parents say that it's it's gut-wrenching to hear it because then they have to end up with special help, right? That they, 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 they don't have what they need to succeed in life. That confidence was taken away. Their parents think they're bad. Everybody thinks I'm bad. No, you're great. You just made a very bad choice. What qualifies somebody to be a Sadiq? Oh, what qualifies someone to be a tzaddik? This is a, 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 a an age-old question. Look, what makes someone a, a tzaddik? And the, the most amazing thing is that if you were to ask a tzaddik, they would say, I don't know, I'm not a tzaddik. <laughs> right? So first is humility. That's the great, that's the greatest um, ingredient that's required. But really it is a commitment and servitude of Hashem without any limitations. Where Hashem takes precedence over everything in my life where my commitment is number one, first and foremost, to the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And when I have that commitment to the Almighty, ah, that is something else. That is something special. So where did we learn that we're really only three Sadiqs ever? No, no, no. There were three, I think what you're referring to, is that there were three righteous people who never died. They were never buried in the ground. They were they they live on forever. Where exactly? It's a good question, right? You know, we see Aaron was actually buried. Moshe buried him. We see Moshe was buried him. Right? He he himself was buried. But in you know, Aaron was in Hor Hahar, which was, and Moshe was buried in an unknown place. God Himself was the Hevra Kadisha, which is why those who are involved with the burial society, it says that you're doing the labor of the Almighty. Because the Almighty did that for Moses. And why didn't God want anyone to know where Moshe was buried? Because he didn't want him to become into an idol. Moshe said the greatest prophet ever to live. You know, we would we would have Rosh Hashanah there and Yom Kippur there and we'd start, you know, going there for... No, 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 no. Recognize that the Almighty is in charge, not Moshe. Moshe was a perfect messenger. Right? Just as, as a sidebar, you know, it says in, in the Talmud that Mashakana Evet Kanarabba, what a servant acquires, belongs to their master. Because they have no... Uh, they have no freedom. They have no ability to possess anything on their own, to own anything, because their entire ownership belongs to their master. Their entire existence belongs to their master. So if they go on the street and they find a, a beautiful watch on the street, 
Thank you very much. It belongs to their master. Their entire existence is for their master. What is the eulogy given to Moshe? You'd think it would be a 30-page eulogy. They would talk on and on about all of Moshe's greatness. Instead, it is three words. Vayemos Moshe, and Moshe died. Sorry, two words. Eved Hashem, a servant of God. Two words. That's it. Why? Because everything a servant acquires is for his master. Everything that Moses, Moses did in his life was for the Almighty. He didn't have any me. I just need to chill out. I need some me time. <laughs> Moshe's me time was for the Almighty. And we see this very interestingly, that when the Jewish people left Egypt, everyone was busy collecting all of the riches from the Egyptians, everything that they saw during the plague of the darkness. They went into all of their cabinets. They went into all of their safes. They saw everything that was going on. They didn't take a thing. And when they were leaving at during or towards the end of the plague of the death of the firstborn, they went over to the Egyptian and they said, and God put the Jews found favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. They said, is it okay that we have some of your gold and silver? And they're like, we don't have any. They're like, I think you do, like in that closet and behind that shelf. And, you know, in that book, you have all that currency, right? They were, And they said, okay, fine, no problem. Here, you can have it. So the Jewish people left with 90 donkeys apiece filled with riches. Don't forget, Egypt was the wealthiest country. They've amassed unbelievable wealth during the famine. During the famine, nobody had food except for Egypt, thanks to Yosef. Yosef put all of those storehouses packed with all of the necessary grains, all of the necessary food for the famine. And everybody who wanted a piece of it had to pay. They, what did they pay with? They paid with first they paid with their money, then they played with, with their with their possessions, and then they paid with their properties. Egypt was a very, very wealthy country at that time. It was the wealthiest country in the world. Wealthiest nation in the world. And the Jewish people leave with everything. But what was Moshe, the righteous? Moshe, the servant of Hashem. What was he busy doing? Was he gathering all the Rolexes and gathering all the, all the fancy shoes? Was he? No. Moshe was going to collect the bones of Joseph. That was promised to Joseph that we're going to collect his bones and bury them in Israel. And Moshe was busy chopping down the cedar wood that was going to be needed for the Mishkan. That's what he was busy with. Why? Because it's not about me. And when Moshe was done chiseling the tablets with the beautiful sapphire stone, what happened? He says, God, what do I do with all the leftovers? There's all these shards, these little chiseled pieces of the sapphire. God says, that's for you. That's for you because when you left Egypt, which is another sign, you'll never miss out. You'll never lose out doing the right thing. Like, oh, but everyone's getting that deal. Don't worry about it. Do the right thing. You're never going to miss out. So what's the second thing that we see from this Talmud here? Listen to your children. They can have some very good advice for you. Listen to the messages. Amram could have said, listen, I'm the righteous of the generation. That's what the Talmud says about Amram. He was the leader of the Jewish people at the time. 
giving them encouragement. Whatever he did, you see everyone followed suit. His daughter, his little daughter says, you know, what are you doing? And he takes heed to what she says and applies it and acts on it. That's a sign of unbelievable, that's a sign of greatness, by the way. That someone is able to learn, learn from anyone. Even from his daughter, he's able to learn and accept. It's not like beneath him. It's not beneath him to, 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 um, to accept the advice from someone who's, I would say, inferior to him in wisdom. He didn't see her as inferior. He saw her as an opportunity for him to grow and to learn and to enhance his connection with Hashem. So the Gemara continues the exposition of the verse describing the remarriage of Amram and Yocheved. By Yikach, when the verse says, and he took a daughter of Levi, connoting a first marriage. By Yachzor Miboyle, it should have said instead that he retook a daughter of Levi. What does it mean he took a daughter of Levi? For it refers to their second marriage. Amr Rabbi Yehuda Barzvina, Rabbi Yehuda Barzvina said, the Torah describes it this way, because when Amram remarried her, he performed for her a ceremony worthy of a first marriage. Second marriage is not always as special as the first one. First go around. Wow, you're going to make it special because this is it. But the second time, like, well, you know, because when Amram remarried her, he performed for her a ceremony worthy of a first marriage. Although a second marriage is usually conducted with less pomp than a first marriage, here Amram conducted the ceremony with great celebration. Amram's purpose in doing this was to publicize the annulment of his decree that all couples should separate. After Miriam presented her criticism to her father, he brought her before the Sanhedrin and had Miriam repeat her argument in their presence. Persuaded, they told Amram, you forbade this matter and you must be the one who formally permits it. You know, sometimes people make a mistake and they're not ready to own up to it. They're like, yeah, I, I take it back, but I'm not going to publicize my take back of that statement. Particularly news media, when they make mistakes which is probably very frequently, uh, they don't, they, they'll publish it on page 85 in the Sunday edition on the bottom, correction, small correction. When Amram asked if they were suggesting that he should remarry Yochevet quietly, they pointed out that if he did so, there would be no one who would promulgate the revocation of the decree to the, to the Jewish public. Consequently, he held a grand ceremony to publicize the new ruling and to encourage all the separated couples to remarry. So this is an incredible thing that happened here. That's why, by the way, the term used in marriage is kicha, is acquisition. When a man marries a woman, he acquires her. He doesn't acquire her like you buy a toothbrush. You go to the supermarket, so you go to the pharmacy and you buy a toothbrush. Oh, so I'm buying my wife as well. No, that's not what you're buying. That's a big, big, big mistake. What you're doing is you're buying her rights of exclusivity. You're buying the rights that she will no longer marry another man. That's what you're buying. 
You're not buying her. You don't own her. She's not your object. It's a big mistake that people think because if you read the words of the Talmud, it says, Kicha, Kicha, we learn because Abraham took. When it says took, it means he acquired the land from Ephraim. And when it talks about marriage, it also says that he took her hand in marriage, which means the same thing, the same language took. It's an acquisition. But what it is it what is it an acquisition of? I say just tell us it's an acquisition of her exclusive exclusivity. You're buying her rights that she'd not marry another man. Right? That's a very important distinction. Yeah, that's, that's why when you're given a get, the rabbis say you're now free to marry another man. That's correct. And when a woman does receive a get, she does get an allowance to marry another man after 92 days, I believe it is. 92, 93 days. Why? So that if she was pregnant, you would know and it would be enough amount, enough time that it would be visible uh, and you would know that where this baby's from. So, either way, the Talmud now continues. Hoshiva Ba'aperyon, he seated her, so this is after he gave her a ceremony of first marriage worthiness. Hoshiva Ba'aperyon, he seated her in a sedan chair. And Aaron and Miriam danced before her. And the ministering angel said concerning this event, He restored the uprooted wife, a glad mother, children. Hallelujah. So the commentaries here explain. And they sang and carried torches. Although Aaron was at the time a very small boy and perhaps did not grasp the cause for celebration, God placed joy in his heart. Alternatively, his older sister directed him. So we know that there's a very important thing when we talk about marriage. And we're going to get to this Talmud. It's a very important Talmud. It says there's an argument in the Talmud. What do you say in front of a bride? What do we say in front of a bride? So there's two opinions. There are two opinions. One opinion says, You say exactly the truth. You say the truth. And the other opinion is, You say how beautiful she is. You say how wonderful she is. But I don't understand. What's the first opinion? You're going to come to the wedding and you say, listen, I hate to say this, but she's a terrible driver. I mean, I have to say the truth, right? Is that is that what the suggestion is in the Talmud? Is like, you're just going to go out and just say the truth. You know, this is my perspective. I worked with her for 10 years and I don't recommend this. You know, it's like, like what what in the world is the Talmud thinking? Sarsay just suggests, and we're going to get to this when we learn it. Just say it the way it is. I say to say that the opinions are the same. Kalanova Hasuda means that you look for the positive. You look for the positive. Every person has a beauty. Every person has a greatness. 
Just ask their mother. They'll tell you how great they are. Every person has something special. You have to find that goodness. Kalakamoshi, that's who they are. Talk about the goodness of who they really are. They may have external actions that may portray them otherwise. See who they really are. That's what you need to praise. The real person. The real goodness. Okay, that's just as a side note. That if we're already talking about dancing in front of the bride, it's another thing. A mitzvah to make a bride and groom happy. That's why we go to a wedding. We don't just go to a wedding so we can eat a free dinner. We go to a wedding to make the bride and groom happy. That they see that you're there with them. There are some commentaries that explain that because men and women don't know what they're really getting themselves into. <laughs> so we try to keep them busy with this happy time so that they don't realize what they've just stepped into. You know what I mean? Which 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 has some truth to it because, you know, till now he was living his life alone. She was living her life alone. It's not so complicated because I just do what I want. And now you're going to have to live a life of challenge because now you're 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 combining lives and making one new world together. That's not always so pleasant. You know, they say that the most challenging part of any transplant is integration. So if someone gets a new heart, oh, wow, they're so happy. I'm, I'm a new person. You know what the body is doing constantly? The body is saying, who is this stranger here? What's yeah. this strange thing doing in me? And it tries to, kill, to, to kick it out. When we get married, it's the same thing. We have this new integration. What's going on here? I threw my laundry on the floor till now, and now someone's saying, hey, pick up your laundry and throw it in the hamper. Wash the dishes. Change the light bulb. I never had anybody tell me what to do till now. It's new integration. That requires a lot of work. Right? Marriage is not a picnic. It's a workshop in character development. It's a workshop in, in becoming the greatest version of ourselves. Reunited with our second half of our soul. So that's why we make them happy. We dance in front of a, a bride and groom. Don't even pay attention for the first couple of weeks. It should be, yeah, the honeymoon. Everything is great. I'm living in paradise. And suddenly, boom, right? So my, my rabbi once said that... Uh, he once saw a young man a few weeks after he got married. He comes to the yeshiva and he's like, he looks really depressed. So he sits next to him and he says to him, is everything okay? So he says, well, yeah, everything's okay. But, you know, he says, so let me guess, you had your first fight. She so says, yeah. He says, mazel tov. Now you can break the plate. <laughs> now you got married. Right? Till now, yeah, you're up and you're dancing and you're up in the clouds and everything is perfect. When you have that first challenge, that's when it begins. That's the work, the work of marriage. And it's a never-ending work. It doesn't like, oh, we'll, we'll just fix the problem and we'll never get into a problem again. Right? That's not the way it works either. It's a life of growth. It's a workshop, a constant struggle with me versus we. 
It's a struggle. It's a struggle, a challenge of living in my own personal selfish world versus living in a world that is committed and dedicated for another human being. That is our perfection that we're hoping for. All right, so that's a little bit about marriage. The Gemara continues with the next words of the verse and expresses puzzlement. Es bas Levi. A man went from the house of Levi and he took a daughter of Levi, referring to Yochavid. Now, how can it be that he's referring to a woman who was 130 years old and literally call her the daughter as if she was a young girl? She was a grown woman. She was 130 years old at the time. And we're calling her like she's a, you know, a young little bride. Before answering the question, the Gemara proves that Yochavit was 130 years old when Amram remarried her. The Amr of for the fact emerges from what Rabbi Chama Bar said in resolving another biblical difficulty. The Torah says there were 70 members of Jacob's family who came to Egypt, but if one counts all the individuals listed in the passage, one finds only 69. In regard to this question, Rav Chama, the son of Rav Hanina said, Zu Yochevet, this missing person, number 70, was Yochevet. Shehorasa Baderech, whose conception took place while Levi was en route to Egypt, in the land of Canaan. Vilei Dasa Benachomos, and whose birth took place between the walls of Egypt. As her mother entered the gateway of the metropolis, Thus, while the family was on the road, there were only 69 descendants accounted for, but by the time they arrived, there were 70. As it says, the name of Amram's wife was Yocheved, daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. The seemingly superfluous last phrase teaches us that her birth birth took place in Egypt, the Ain Horasa and her conception did not take place in Egypt. Now the Jewish people spent two hundred and ten years in Egypt, and Moses was eighty years old when they departed. If Yochevet was born as they arrived in Egypt, she must have been a hundred and thirty years old, because they left after two hundred and ten years, right? Yeah. When she gave birth to Moses. So now the question is, how can the Torah refer to this elderly woman as merely a daughter of Levi, a young little bride? The Gemara answers on Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda said the Torah speaks of Yocheved as one would speak of a young woman. Shenoldu ba simone narus. Because at her advanced age, the physical characteristics of a young woman were reborn in her. The Gemara turns to the next verse in the passage under discussion. The woman, Yocheved, conceived and gave birth to a son at 130 years old. Why does the Torah mention that she conceived here? As if she conceived only after she remarried but she was already pregnant with Moses three months before, as we will shortly demonstrate. Amar Rabbi Yehuda Bar Zvina, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Zvina, the son of Zvina, says, 
The Torah mentions here that Yochevet conceived so that we may in, we may compare her act of giving birth to her act of conceiving. Just as her as she conceived without pain, so too she gave birth without pain. From here we may derive that righteous women of all generations were not affected by Eve's verdict that womanhood, womankind would have to suffer pain in childbirth. So here the Talmud says that a couple of things. First is that she was 130 years old at this time. So why does it say that she was called a young woman? Why? Because her body started to function like a young woman's body, giving her the ability to have a child. And she has a child when she's 130 years old. And she gave birth without any pains. Why no pains? Because she was a righteous woman. And righteous women were not given the same curse as Eve. Eve was cursed that she'll have etzev tel dibanim, that with pain and with sadness you will birth children. There's a lot to unpackage in that. The Talmud will get to that hopefully one day. But we see from this that Yocheved, Moshe's mother, just like she got pregnant without pain, she gave birth without pain as well. And this shows of her righteousness. After Adam and Eve sinned, in the Garden of Eden, God judged them and handed down an edict of punishment. Mankind would no longer be immortal. Adam and his descendants would have to labor mightily for sustenance. For Eve and her gender, pregnancy and childbirth would henceforth be accompanied by many and varied aches and pains. The punishment was retaliatory. By assimilating with their nature an awareness of and a temptation to sin, Adam and Eve became unworthy to remain in the spiritual paradise of Eden. Consequently, they were expelled. As a result, life changed in virtually every conceivable way. Okay, so we're going to stop here, my dear friends. We're going to conclude this episode of the Thinking Talmudist podcast. We hope you like, enjoy, share, click, review uh, this podcast. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Shabbat Shalom.